Hello again. Today in Kofi, we're talking Voltaire, Leibniz, optimism, and uh, related matters. Asking questions like, if whatever is, is right, is political reform or personal growth and change ever an appropriate aspiration? Does anyone ever really act as if they believe that this is the best of all possible worlds? What would you change about the world or your life if you could? Even if there's a logical explanation for everything, does it follow that there's a justification? If you agree that Panglossian or Leibnizian optimism, the sort that observes that noses were made to wear spectacles, so this must be the pe best of all possible worlds, if that's ridiculous, what form of optimism isn't? Are you an optimist and why? Why do you think people who survive earthquakes, floods, tornadoes, etc., so frequently praise God for sparing them, even or especially when their neighbors are not so fortunate? What does this say about human nature and religion focused on personal salvation? Was Voltaire's play an example of cultivating your garden? What other examples can you think of? Do you like deism? Is it more defensible against charges of divine in indifference than mainstream theism? And also catching up on Johnson, Boswell, Barclay, etc. From last time, the Almanac recognizes Samuel Johnson's sidekick, Boswell, who was also Voltaire's friend. A good segue for us. It's the birthday, or it was the birthday, of Boswell. James Boswell, born in Edinburgh in 1740, best known as the author of The Life of Johnson in 1791, a biography of Dr. Samuel Johnson, which is considered by many to be the greatest biography ever written in English. As a young man, Boswell's father wanted him to settle down and take care of the family's ancestral estate in rural Scotland. Boswell wanted adventure, excitement, and intrigue, so he ran away to London and became a Catholic. He began keeping a journal in London, and instead of describing his thoughts and feelings about things, he wrote down scenes from his life as though they were fiction. He described his friends as though they were characters and recorded long stretches of dialogue. As a young man, Boswell was the life of the party, and everyone who met him liked him. French writer Voltaire invited him to stay at his house after talking to him for only half an hour. David Hume asked him to stay at his bedside when he died. He hung out with the philosopher Rousseau, and Rousseau's mistress liked him so much that she had an affair with Boswell. He was even friends with the Pope. And then on May 16, 1763, he met the scholar and writer Samuel Johnson in the back room of a bookstore. Johnson was a notoriously unfriendly man, but Boswell had long admired him and tried hard to impress him. The next time they met, Johnson said to Boswell, Give me your hand. I've taken a liking to you. Johnson was 30 years older than Boswell, and he was the most renowned literary scholar in England. Boswell was undistinguished compared to Johnson's other friends, but Boswell never tried to compete with Johnson's intellect. Their relationship was like an interview that went on for years. Boswell would just ask questions and listen to Johnson talk, and then he'd go home and write it all down in his journal. The two men eventually became great friends. They talked about everything from philosophy and religion to trees and turnips. Boswell knew early on that he would write Johnson's biography, but he didn't start until after Johnson's death. The work was slow going. He watched as several others published books about Johnson and worried that no one would care about his book when he finished it. He had to fight with his editor to keep the odd details like the things Johnson had said to his cat and what kind of underwear he thought women should wear. He felt that these were the details that revealed who Johnson really was. When the book finally came out, it was a huge bestseller. No one had ever written such a personal biography that so completely captured a life 
and no one has done so since. Leibniz, Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, 1746 to 1716. He wrote the Monadology in 1714. It's a highly condensed outline of his metaphysics. He said complete individual substances, or, or monads, are dimensionless points which contain all of their properties, past, present, and future, and indeed the entire world. The true propositions that express their natures follow inexorably from the principles of contradiction and sufficient reason. The same themes are presented more popularly in the Discourse of Me on Metaphysics in 1686. There, Leibniz emphasized the role of a benevolent deity in creating this the best of all possible worlds where everything exists in a perfect pre-established harmony with everything else. Since space and time are merely relations, all of science is a study of phenomenal objects. According to Leibniz, human knowledge involves the discovery within our own minds of all that is a part of our world, and although we cannot make it otherwise, we ought to be grateful for our own inclusion in it. Well, there's an alternative to optimism and pessimism. The optimist thinks this is the best of all possible worlds. The pessimist fears that might be true, and the meliorist just wants to make it better. William James wrote in Pragmatism, Truly, there is something a little ghastly in the satisfaction with which a pure but unreal system will fill a rationalist mind. Leibniz was a rationalist mind, with infinitely more interest in facts than most rationalist minds can show. Yet, if you wish for superficiality incarnate, you have only to read that charmingly written theodicy of his, in which he sought to justify the ways of God to man and to prove that the world we live in is the best of possible worlds. And... There are unhappy men who think the salvation of the world impossible. Theirs is the doctrine known as pessimism. Optimism, in turn, would be the doctrine that thinks the world's salvation inevitable. Midway between the two, there stands what may be called the doctrine of meliorism, though it has hitherto figured less as a doctrine than as an attitude in human affairs. Optimism has always been the regnant doctrine in European philosophy. Pessimism was only recently introduced by Schopenhauer and counts few systematic defenders as yet. Meliorism treats salvation as neither inevitable nor impossible. It treats it as a possibility which becomes more and more of a probability the more numerous the actual conditions of salvation become. It is clear that pragmatism must incline towards meliorism. And here's an old post from last March on Voltaire and Leibniz. Brains, John Campbell was saying in his Berkeley interview, his Barclay interview, are a big asset. It's very important that we have brains. Their function is to reveal the world to us, not to, de not to generate a lot of random junk. Voltaire, dubbed by Bertrand Russell the chief transmitter of English influence to France, was an enemy of philosophical junk, too. One of the great Enlightenment salon wits, a deist and foe of social injustice who railed against religious intolerance, écrasé l'infamé, and mercilessly parodied rationalist philosophers, especially Leibniz, also known as Dr. Pangloss. Pangloss was professor of metaphysico-theologico-cosmolo-negology. He proved admirably that there is no effect without a cause, and that in this the best of all possible worlds, the baron's castle was the most magnificent of castles, and his lady the best of all possible baronesses. There's a lot of pain in the world, and it does not seem well distributed. 
William James called Leibniz's theology, as we noted a moment ago, the superficiality incarnate. Leibniz's feeble grasp of reality is too obvious to need comment from me. It is evident that no realistic image of the experience of a damned soul had ever approached the portals of his mind. And James's comments continue in a similarly scathing vein. He was particularly incensed by the disconnect between Leibniz's philosophy and the suffering of a distraught Clevelander whose plight and ultimate suicide stands for the despair of so many through the ages. But if you like Leibniz's defense of the ways of God, maybe you'd love his monadology. Maybe not. But if one substance is good, how good is a practical infinity of them? Russell raises the basic objection to Leibniz's fantastical scheme of windowless monads. If they, we, never really interact, how do they or we know about each other? It might just be a bizarre collective dream, after all, and the best possible world claim is just not persuasive, though many will want to believe it. People wish to think the universe good, and will be in lenient to bad arguments proving that it is so, while bad arguments proving that it is bad are closely scanned. In fact, of course, the world is partly good and partly bad, and no problem of evil. Voltaire's countryman Diderot offered a sharp rejoinder to those who said non-believers couldn't be trusted. An honest person is honest without threats. Whatever is, is right. Alexander Pope, I don't care which Pope said that, it's crazy. It's no way to think and live. Submit in this or any other sphere, secure to be as blessed as thou canst bear, safe in the hand of one disposing power or in the natal or the mortal hour. All nature is but art, unknown to thee, all chance direction, which thou canst not see, all discord harmony, not understood, all partial evil, universal good. And spite of pride in erring reason's spite, one truth is clear, whatever is is right. Pope, essay on man. Everything happens from a cause, sure, but not for a reason, if that's code for the best. Irremediably, irredeemably bad things happen. Regret is an appropriate first response. Of course we should try to prevent recurrences of the worst by our lights that happens. Voltaire's Candide may be the most devastating parody ever penned. A logical explanation for everything leaves the world much as it found it, less than perfect and easy to improve. Feeding the hungry, curing the sick, educating the ignorant, saving the earth are obvious improvements to begin with. All is well, Miss Blue? An obscure reference to a sweet-hearted cleaning lady I used to hear on the radio when I was young, who ruined that phrase for me. I don't think so. But the Lisbon earthquake of 1755 did nothing to block Voltaire's Pangloss from continuing to insist that everything is the result of a pre-established harmony. What must it be like to live in a bubble of denial so insulated from reality as to permit a learned person to believe that? After tornadoes, earthquakes, and other fatal natural disasters, people interviewed on television frequently thank God for sparing them. Hardly a reasonable response, even if a lifetime of indoctrination and insulation makes it understandable. But to say it in the hearing of survivors whose loved ones weren't spared, many of whom prayed just as hard. That's unspeakably insensitive. If acts of God, as the insurance companies put it, take life randomly, and you happen to be one of the random survivors, is gratitude really the humane response? Candide's statement that we must cultivate our garden is a metaphor for not just talking about abstract philosophical questions, but instead doing something for our species while we have the opportunity. It's a plea for applied philosophy. It's a plea for meliorism. Talk to you later.